Good morning. As we uh, come back together, we are uh, looking at Romans. We're moving uh, along, hopefully, uh, at a timely pace. This morning, we will be uh, looking at Romans chapter 1, moving into verses 13 through 17. Uh, this is uh, a transition from what is traditionally seen as uh, Paul's introduction and welcome uh, into uh, the meat of his uh, apologetic, his explanation of the righteousness of God. And I want to remind you briefly before we go into the text that there are really four sections to the book of Romans. We have one through four, which is the revealing of God's righteousness, his right acts in the midst of a broken and fallen world. And so Paul is going to talk about how God's actions through Jesus and throughout history leading up to the crucifixion uh, and resurrection of King Jesus, how that is all a series of actions by God in his right, addressing the wrong that human beings keep embracing and uh, being, well, shall we say, uh, rather attached to. And so he's breaking that habit. Then from there, uh, how is that habit going to be broken? Well, we look in more detail at the new covenant and new creation, uh, that there is a renewal or a new covenant uh, because of the work of Christ, and that ushers in a season of new creation, uh, how God is going to put things back together in the way that they were always designed to be. And so that's uh, verses five, uh, chapters five through eight. Nine through 11 is going to be God's faithfulness and Israel's unbelief. Remember, this book was written to people wrestling with what do we do now that the Jewish folks have moved back into Rome after they were kicked out under Claudius, and how do we then function as a church when we have uh, these different cultures and theological backgrounds and we have this complication? So what's it look like, and what is the role then of God's faithfulness to the people of Israel? And then lastly, in verses 12 through 16, faithfulness and fellowship inside and outside the body. How do we function inside and outside the body of Christ is Paul's uh, unpacking then of the implications of everything that has gone before. Somehow we have moved into a flight pattern this morning. Uh, the wind is just right, and uh, so I will try and speak loud. For many of you know that's a challenge for me. But let's put the text in front of us. We're again in the beginning and opening sections of Romans, but I wanted us to be reminded that we are reading a book that is a whole. And when it takes a year to get through a book, sometimes we can forget what the whole thing is about. And so here this morning, we look again at Paul's description and unpacking of the righteousness of God, God's right actions in and through creation. This morning, I'll start in verse 13 and read through 17. Hear now God's word. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation to both Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, 
to the Jew first, and then also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would assure and comfort us as we look into your word. Lord, we desire to be, again, amazed, in awe, and encouraged by a God who saves from sin and death, who delivers in the right time the work on our behalf that sets us free. We pray that as we, again, we reflect on this passage so well known that we would be encouraged. And Lord, anything that is said this morning that is not true or useful for the building up of your people, may those words quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. So as we address this uh, topic of salvation, which is clearly key for Paul here, it is the great joy. The good news is that we've been saved. But of course, the question is in our culture and our time uh, where we, in, particularly on this side of the Atlantic and the Pacific, have not seen a whole lot of open warfare and conflict on our shores. Most of the great wars uh, of the last century took place somewhere else. Uh, we haven't needed uh, the salvation or deliverance of a freeing army to uh, knock off the uh, totalitarian regime of an invader. Understand that politically, occasionally, we like to use the terms of totalitarian, but at least it's our own local totalitarian, not a foreign totalitarian. And so we perhaps have uh, continually minimized or at least uh, uh, individualized this notion of salvation, that salvation is my personal uh, way to get to someplace else called heaven. But that is not the context of Paul's discussion of salvation as he writes it to a church at the center of the Roman Empire. Last week I talked about how the city of New York City in many ways is the closest thing to the city of God we have had in hundreds and hundreds of years because it is so multicultural and so international and the culture that's built there and the art and the science. In many ways it reflects what it looks like for every tribe, every nation, and every tongue to come into a place. And yes, it is difficult, and it often causes conflict, this side of glory. Yet nonetheless, people from disparate backgrounds and different economic levels able to live together in the same place. But in the same way, uh, the Roman city was also, for its day and age, fairly cosmopolitan, and in some ways, reflected some of that challenge and also the hope. And that's why Paul's writing this book to a group of churches that are a combination of Gentile and Jewish believers, and they're struggling with what happens culturally and philosophically and religiously when they gather together. This morning, however, I want to talk about how a place like Rome and New York City also represent some of the worst of what happens this side of glory when the powers and principalities of this world begin to distort and pervert humanity through the pursuit of pleasure and power and money. And how, 
how people lose their humanity and take advantage of the other in order that they might succeed and they might have what they desire. There is real evil in this world and real forces. Paul talks about it in other places as being the powers and principalities of this world. We sometimes fail to recognize how significant the spiritual warfare really is and how the spirits of death and decay and evil seek to pervert the good things and make them ways of actually robbing us of our humanity. As I was thinking about this sermon, I was reminded of G.K. Chesterton's uh, thought and quote as he reflects on fairy tales and how we teach children these fairy tales and there are these things under the bed and there are uh, real evils in the world seeking to destroy the life and peace of the common folks as they gather together in their hamlets or just try and sleep in their beds. And Chesterton makes the argument that it, the problem isn't that we're introducing new ideas to children, that somehow they all of a sudden are now going to be afraid of something under the bed or afraid of what happens in the dark or afraid of those who are bigger or stronger and threatening. They already understand fear. They already, most of them, have experienced the reality of evil. The question isn't whether or not there is something under the bed. The question is, is there something strong enough to kill the thing under the bed? Is there a hero who can come and defeat those things, whether dragons or spirits or powerful evil armies? Is there something or someone who can deliver us? And what Chesterton's point was is that we tell children uh, fairy tales not because they need to know about the dragon, but because they need to be assured that there is a St. George, that there is one who can and will defeat evil itself. We need salvation. And in whatever ways, without initially uh, raising unnecessary fears, the recognition that we as a people and as a world need not just a little help, not just a little adjustment, not just a way off this planet and into some place called heaven, but we need a liberating force and army that the power of Christ as our king is one who killed and defeated sin and death and put it on the run. So this morning, we're going to talk a little bit about the warfare. We're going to talk a little bit about whose side God's on. And we're going to talk about the power of salvation. First of all, warfare. Verse 13. Paul has been prevented from coming to Rome. Providentially, he's been unable to get there. And he has described it as being powers in Asia, in Asia Minor, that were blocking his ability to get to Rome. And we should not dismiss that. Where would the enemy least like the power of Paul's preaching and the gospel to go? The heart of the empire. We read in chapter 16 that there were people from the household of Narcissus. Narcissus was Claudius's number two. Emperor Claudius had just died and Nero had just ascended to the throne of emperor. 
to have believers in the second or third most influential household in Rome is no small threat to the enemy. An enemy who delights to use the power of Rome to crush. Remember, again, how evil rulers really can be. And we have fleeting understandings of this, but as wonderful as Caesar Augustus was in bringing the Pax Romana, he brought it by nailing people to crosses and putting them along the road to remind them that there was a good reason to be peaceful. Because you can be peaceful as live people, or you can be peaceful as those who are dead. But one way or another, Rome will have peace. Titus, Tiberius, was a complete paranoid nutball who was absolutely savage in his purges in Rome. Everyone, from the richest to the poorest, lived in fear of being put on a list at any moment. As an enemy of the state, their their, uh, possessions confiscated, many of them killed. Tiberius got so paranoid he went and lived on an island and just killed people from a distance. Claudius is described as, well, sorry, before that, after that, there's Caligula. Again, many of Caligula's life experiences are not general reading at bedtime. He was a horrific individual, whether he was doing it because he was pragmatically Machiavellian or whether he was insane. Living in Rome was a dangerous place under Caligula. It got somewhat better under Claudius, but not for the Jews, because when they had a debate about Jesus and started rioting and disagreeing, Claudius just kicked all of the Jewish folks out of Rome. We know Nero's going to be no picnic. There's real warfare. Real evil. Is it any wonder that the enemy doesn't want the peace and wisdom the ethics of the kingdom of God to begin to undo what was so clearly the rule of the day, which is everyone lived at fear of the whim of the man God who filled the seat of emperor. We need salvation from that. And when Paul declares that there is actually a greater Lord, and we've talked about how much Paul's language in this opening section is a direct political assault, on the powers and principalities of this world. He is Lord, not Nero. He is to be worshipped as true king, not the emperor. These are political and religious statements because in ancient Rome there was no division between politics and religion. They were the same. You didn't get things done in the marketplace without kneeling to the emperor and paying your taxes. We live in a time where we can see those things somewhat divided, yet practically they keep folding in on themselves. Because our idols and the principalities of this world don't function in the neat categories we have as enlightenment people. They don't have a religious category and a secular category. The powers and principalities of this world know the way things really are, and the way things really are is that everything is spiritual. And everything is material because the creator built both and the enemy wants to pervert both. We can't separate these grand ideas. We are in constant warfare. 
and the enemy is preventing salt and light, the power and truth that God is bringing through Paul's preaching by the Holy Spirit from entering that city. They need the gospel. And they're hungry for it. The church in Rome grew steadily, even under persecution. We know uh, in recently one of the things that launched new urbanism in the PCA was Tim Keller going in against all advice into Manhattan and planning a church. Now it seems like the easiest thing to ever, ever decide to do. Well, of course it'll go well. But if we all remember the 80s and 90s, and some of you do, there was no good thing. We were all watching 70s movies about the burning and destruction and death of New York City. It was a place to flee from. No one was going back in and planting churches in the urban cores of our nation. But with a few folks bringing salt and light of the gospel, it's been wonderfully refreshing to see how often that has been met with a longing and a great desire for the life and hope that comes from the gospel. The enemy will tell us, don't go there. It's too dark. It's too powerful. And you will feel the darkness at times, to be sure, which is why we don't go alone. But we cannot imagine that we are being uh, just inadvertently blocked from entering dark places. But that this is the work of the enemy, as Paul says blocking the gospel from going to those places where it will actually meet great success. One generation or another. Secondly, whose side are you on? Verses 13 through 15. So Paul says, uh, again, in order that he may reap a harvest among you, he's under obligation to the Greeks and barbarians, both wise and the foolish. I'm eager to preach the gospel. What do I mean by this? Well, if we go back to Joshua, Asking the man, the, the, the uh, theophany of the head of the army of God, are you with us or are you with Jericho? And his answer is, neither. I'm with the Lord. Why? Well, because even God's people get off kilter quite a bit. And that the role is to always be advocating for the kingdom ethics, always advocating for the kingdom. What that means is that it was going to critique certain ways in which God's people lived in the promised land. The reason that the leader of God's army couldn't say that I'm with you, Joshua, is because Joshua, your people are going to do a lot of knuckleheaded things that I cannot endorse. You're going to work contrary to what I tell you to do. I'm not on your side. I'm on the side of actual justice, righteousness, mercy, kindness, Love, that's where God lines up. The reason I think that it's important for us to recognize is that Paul is not coming in by the writing of the book of Romans and his visit to take the side of the Gentiles. He's not going to take the side of the Jewish folks. He's going to take the side of the gospel and say, here is how this transforms both of your understandings. Here's how the humiliation and service of Christ is a model that shakes the very foundations of how the emperors of Rome ruled with their grandeur and their power and their statues. I give you a naked man hanging on a cross, not a strong man with a sword robed in marble. 
You're not going to understand how real power works until you understand the work of Christ on the cross and the resurrection. Those who have understood the covenant for years are going to need to understand that it was not exclusively ever for them, but that they were to be a means as God's covenant people for the blessing of all the nations. And he's going to advocate for a new understanding in the people who are Jewish to understand what it means to be the instruments of grace and mercy that they were promised all the way back in the first covenants. Whose side are you on? It's a question we have to ask ourselves in this day and age as much as it was asked by the early church. Are we on the side that wrestles with the kingdom of God, which both affirms and critiques every culture that it comes in contact with? The scriptures are neither conservative nor liberal. They both affirm that which is always eternally true, and they address and undermine those things which run contrary to who God is. It's why we've talked about how we have to sometimes edit scripture when it begins to, or at least we feel like we need to edit scripture, when it begins to press against our culture. It doesn't matter whether that's liberal or conservative. It doesn't matter whether you edit out things about the resurrection and miracles or you edit things out about slavery and poverty and justice for the poor and living on behalf of the other that undermine certain aspects of conservative culture. There is no safe place for a human culture in scripture. Human cultures will always be confronted with a transcendent and eternal ethic that comes from God. Whose side are we on? And then lastly, the power of salvation in verse 16 and 17. You see, the power of salvation has to be great because our problem is great. It's not just individual sin. It's the implications of sin and brokenness throughout the world. It doesn't matter whether I go to a cave and try and isolate myself from all the ways you guys tempt me. I would be fine if it wasn't for you. And then I find that I brought all of those thoughts into me, with me, in me, in the cave. And my sin is usually worse in certain ways when I'm alone too long. The problem isn't just out there, it's in here. But at the same time, part of the pressure to do the things I don't want to do comes from the pragmatics of a world around me that says I've got to feed the beast. Whatever that beast is, my ego, my finances, my career, my ideal family, the pressures come from the outside as well. And salvation is both an internal setting free and an external battle with those things that would seek to re-enslave me and you. We need a glorious and huge salvation. The problem is just that large, and I can't say it very well. So let me try and give you the imagery from Psalm 24 as we close the sermon for a couple of questions. Psalm 24. Here the psalmist described the glory and joy of salvation. A psalm of David. 
The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Quick note. Remember, oftentimes in Jewish poetry, water is chaos. Water is the thing that is unstable. Sometimes Gentiles, sometimes just the problems of the world. And so for God to be so mighty that he can actually found it upon that which is chaos. Go back to Genesis chapter 1. This is a God who brings order out of chaos. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand on his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false. He does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and the righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient of doors that the King of glory may come in, who is the King of glory, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in, who is the King of glory, the Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. This is what we will talk more about next week when we reflect on living by faith. Because this picture in Psalm 24 is the reality of the resurrection. It is what they experienced on the road to Emmaus. It is what they delighted in on the day when he ascended. And it is the visions that capture the writer of Hebrews when he imagines and knows that we have a great high priest who stands at the right hand of the Father. And it is a beginning of the picture and the glory of Revelation as it describes the Lamb that was slain and the great throne room and the glory of Jerusalem, the new city descending here, back to this creation, reuniting for eternity heaven and earth so that we no longer feel the separation of matter and spirit knowing again that we were created to be one, one with the realm of our creator, one with the realm that he created. We need salvation because we need restoration. We need an enemy defeated that was too great for us. And now we can rest in the sure knowledge that though the enemy still fights rear guard actions in its defeat and retreat that the power of death has been broken that the pragmatism of rome and of new york and of all of the cities that have come before that have promised only power and wealth have only highlighted the abuse and the strength can be restored to cities like cities of god where that richness of community and fellowship the beauty of art and culture and music, all of the creative acts of God restored again as his people delight in fellowship. What does salvation mean to you? As you reflect on the richness of Paul's words here, how big or how small do you imagine salvation needing to be, not just for you, 
not just for your family, but for the world that God loves. And then as we prepare for next Sunday's sermon, how is it that the reality of that salvation and all of the past tense language that Paul uses for our justification and for our adoption and our security in Christ, how has that reality of having been saved, of the salvation of God revealed, transformed the way you interact? What does it mean to have the power and strength of the gospel and the victory of Christ as our hope? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be merciful to the preaching of your word. We are grateful, grateful, Lord, that you do not waste anything that's good and that in your salvation, all that is of you will again be made clean, made clear, delight and beauty and joy restored. We pray, Lord, that we might take great confidence that we have one who has come to defeat the thing under the bed, that the old dragon has been driven off. May we rest in that this week and until you return. In Christ's name, amen.